Nehemiah 5, 1 through 13. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them, 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this week, when Adam and I were planning the worship service, um, I told him we really need to... A song that sets up the sermon well. And uh, he did some research and he came back to my office. He said, I got just a song. He said, I, I did some research and there's a little known song that Nehemiah wrote. <laughs> and, and he showed it to me, said, this is it. Um, no, of course, none of that's true. But if Nehemiah had written a song and had sung it to the people, it would have been something like that. It will be love that holds us together. We don't use one another. We work together and God will be with us. That's the theme of Nehemiah in large part. You know, the scriptures actually tell us in almost these words that we, the church, and we as individuals are a temple of the Holy Spirit. If you want another reference, one of them is 1 Corinthians 3.16. Both collectively and individually, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, you know that building a temple takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of sacrifice. It takes a lot of time. And Nehemiah is building a wall for the purpose of protecting a temple that Ezra started. And when you build like that, you often encounter difficulties. About a month and a half ago, I was reading and I came across a quote by Phillips Brooks. Now that's an old author. 
and his language is a little old, but you'll get the gist of it. Phillips Brooks says this, whenever souls are tried and ripened in whatever commonplace and homely way, there God is hewing out the pillars for his temple. Isn't that interesting? Wherever there's difficulty, wherever there's conflict, wherever there's crisis in a community of faith, in an individual of faith, it's there that God is carving out the pillars of his temple. Nehemiah was doing some great work to rebuild these walls. But of course he faced external opposition in the form of Sanballat and others. And now in this chapter for the first time we realize that not was, it was not true that all the opposition was external. The opposition here is internal. It's from within the community. Now Nehemiah has a real problem on his hands. So what's the nature of the problem? Let me uh, outline it for you if you didn't pick up the details in the reading. Uh, The first thing was this. In order for Nehemiah to get this wall built, he had to recruit far and wide in Israel to get the workers. The workers that came to help him rebuild the wall left everything behind. They left their fields behind, They left their family behind, and for roughly eight weeks, they dedicated themselves to building up this wall. That's a big enough problem. Leave your house behind, leave your fields behind, and see what happens in an agrarian community. And it started to happen. There was a second problem. It wasn't just absence from your home and your fields. There was a widespread famine in the land as well. You even hear records of this uh, in other parts of the land, like in the Persian Empire. There's a widespread famine. Widespread famines, by the way, inflation and gas prices, or any other economic distress disproportionately always affects the poor. So a famine, in this case, disproportionately affects the poor. They've got no reserves. There's something else about famine that probably we should remind ourselves of. Maybe we know it, maybe we're just so 21st century that we don't know it. But if you're living in an agrarian society and you're raising your own crops and you're selling your own crops, all it takes is one famine to completely devastate you. Why? Because you've got no grain left over to plant the next year. And when that happens to a farmer now, where does he go? The co-op, the government, borrows money to plant his fields. They didn't have that. No grain, no food. So they left their livelihood behind to build a wall. There was a famine in the land and their family was suffering. And then 
right in the middle of this hardship, it's hard to even believe, in the middle of this hardship, people who are a part of the nation of Israel, who have plenty of wealth and have backup resources, those people say to the poor people, oh, we'll help you out. You just let us have your land and we'll give you some help. Furthermore, if you just give us your children as slaves to work our land, we'll give you help. One of the references in here speaks about sons and daughters, and it says, our daughters were being ravished. Do I need to fill in the gaps? They were sold. They were just trying to keep food on the table. And their fellow Israelites were taking advantage of them. Okay, so there's some of the conditions. Let's just add one more layer. The king of Persia slaps the tax on all his provinces. They can't even make enough food for themselves. They certainly can't make any money, and he's taxing their land. How are they going to make it? Well, it's no wonder there was a huge outcry that Nehemiah had to address. So if that was the problem, what was the approach to the problem by Nehemiah? Well, the first approach to the problem by Nehemiah is he gets righteously indignant. He is mad. It, it, it makes you think that Nehemiah, when he heard the news just wanted to explode and go through the city streets and shout, you wicked people. But you know what? He didn't. One of the translations says, I calmed myself by consulting with myself. You get the picture, right? I sat down and I said, Nehemiah, keep your cool. Nehemiah, you're right, but if you explode right now, it's not going to be helpful. He sat down and he cooled off. That was his first approach to the problem. The second approach to the problem is as governor, and he had a lot of authority. Instead of just standing up and making a declaration about the way things were going to be, he called together the tribal leaders. And he said to them, and it looks like, if you take a look at the text, it looks like this is in two stages, because the second part of it said he, he got together a larger group. So he calls together the tribal leaders, and he says, really? You're doing this to your own people? There, there was a form of consensus building going on there, in my opinion, with Nehemiah. It reminded me of uh, being in Ghana, which, by the way, um, I'm going to be able to go over to northern Ghana uh, for uh, the opening of the hospital that we've supported and the ministry we've supported for years in August. And I'm really looking forward to um, that, that opening. I just didn't think I could do it, but they asked me a couple of times, and so we made a way. Um, and I, I'm going to be just delighted to be a part of it. But I remember on one occasion, one of the several times I've been there, we were working to build a small clinic. 
particularly for mothers who otherwise would lose their children in, in childbirth and for other issues. And as we were <laughs> building the clinic, all of a sudden up the main road comes these blaring horns and loudspeaker and somebody's shouting to whoever can listen. And David looked up and he said, oh, it's the candidate for the presidency. He's heading up this main road and he wants to get everybody's attention and he came in and David let him say hello to the workers and then he got back in his car and he took off up the road. David turned to me and he said, I don't know if you know this, but they have to build consensus with the chiefs. Now, I had been in several villages and I knew who the chiefs were. They were people who were living in huts, mud huts with thatch roofs. They were people who were severely impoverished compared to those in the southern part of the country in Accra. But this candidate realized he had to build consensus with local leaders. It strikes me as the same thing when I read this passage in Nehemiah. He realized, I can't just make a declaration. I have to work with the leaders who represent the people. So he built consensus. There's one more thing I want to say about how he addressed the problem. How he addressed the problem is he approached them or appealed to them based on their moral conscience. In other words, he assumed they had a moral conscience. He didn't just condemn. As a matter of fact, he did not ignore their greed. He called it out. Said it was against the law, basically the Mosaic law. He didn't mince words, but he didn't assume they were pure evil for doing what they were doing, which was usury. He appealed to them this way. He said... We were bought out of slavery. And part of our history is to buy people out of slavery. Our fellow Israelite brothers and sisters so they can have a life. And now you're turning back on the very people that we have purchased from slavery. And you have been purchased from slavery. I mean, historically. And now you're enslaving them. I'm not sure he put it in quite these words. But he might have said, this is what I hear. Please explain. How can you do that? And then he said, Should we not walk in the fear of the Lord? And these are my words, if for no other reason than to keep at bay the taunts of the enemy. In other words, shouldn't we live up to our own principles, which is not using other people so that the people around us don't look at us and say, ah, yeah, they talk a good game, but they're no different than anybody else. That was his appeal to their moral conscience. We ought to honor the Lord and fear him and do us what is right. He might also have said this, don't do the work of sandballot for him. 
He was trying to discourage us and bring us down. And now you've stepped into his shoes and you're doing the same thing from the inside out. You're destroying our motivation. Let's not do that. We're better than that. So as as I think of that story, I think about points of application. Um, And I want to say two things before I give the details. Uh, The first is this. Routinely, commentaries on Nehemiah use the entire book of Nehemiah to focus on basically one thing, good leadership. And, And I understand. It's a great book to learn good leadership. But the Word of God is bigger than one topic, okay? And so I got to admit to you, I'm reading commentaries, and I'm saying to myself, okay, guys, we get it. Isn't there anything else here? So what I want to say is it is a good model for leadership. But I think it's also a good model for personal spiritual growth. The principles embedded in this book tell us something about ourselves and how we ought to function, whether we consider ourselves to be leaders of organizations or groups at all. And here, here are some of those points of application. You might expect this one. Notice that Nehemiah cools down even though he's right. You know, there's a couple of reasons when you get righteously indignant to take a chill pill. One, because you could be wrong. We're not infallible. And two, it fits that. You might not know the whole story. So chill out a little bit. Cool down before you get too excited. There's another reason that we might want to cool down when we feel righteously indignant. It's because righteous indignation, it fuels pride. Even when you're right. Even when you're doing God's will. It can puff you up. And I think that the story of Jesus is important here when he comes upon the woman who's been caught in adultery. And the teachers of the law, of course, are trying to corner Jesus like they always did. And in that moment, they say, she ought to be stoned according to the law of Moses. So don't you think we should do this? And Jesus says, hmm. No, it's not in the text. That's that's what I think he's saying. Hmm. And then instead of responding to their question, he gets down the dirt and starts writing. Says, let whichever one is of you is without sin, you can cast the first stone. Then he writes. And one by one as he writes, all her accusers drift away. Wonder why. When I was a kid, we used to do some exams where we would have 
words on one side and words on the other side. And then to get the right answer, we were supposed to draw a line from one word to the next word. Right? Match the words. I have no idea what Jesus wrote. But give me some holy conjecture space here for a minute. I want to believe that he knew all the names of the accusers. And so maybe he stooped down to the ground, he just started writing their names on one column. And then he put a line and he started writing sins in another column. And they're like, oh my. He's reading my mail. The implication might have been, do you see yourself over there? Which one connects to you? Maybe. But the point, Jesus said, is this. If you want to stoner, you stoner if you think you're flawless and without sin. And of course, they walked away. Righteous indignation can get us to the place of the Pharisees. And Jesus pulls us back, just like Nehemiah, by God's grace, pulled himself back and said, I need to cool down before I'm too judgmental. He didn't drop the facts. He didn't pretend like they weren't wrong. It just reset him. Think back over this last week or month. Can you think of a time that it might have been a good idea to have a reset for yourself? Where you were overcome with righteous indignation and you just went off? Think maybe it had been a good idea to reset? Second point of application is uh, as Nehemiah did, I think we need to build a conscience coalition, right? You need to appeal to people's conscience to, to build this coalition so that they can hear. And I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 18, where if you have been offended against by your brother, you go to your brother and you try to explain the fault and win him over. And if you've won him over, the scripture says, you've won a friend. You don't go to your brother and punch him because he punched you. You don't go to your brother and accuse him because you felt accused by him. You go to your brother and you talk about it. Sometimes we see that as an order of church discipline. And I get it, it's there. But it seems like the primary purpose is not an order of church discipline in that passage. It's reconciliation. It's stepping into a conflict with a brother and trying to win the brother. So that we can mutually understand through an appeal to conscience. The third thing I I take away as an application is this. um, When you're righteously indignant, not only should you cool down a little bit, but you, you shouldn't just assume the worst about your enemy. Maybe nobody else has got that problem, but I do. I, I, when, when it's bad, I want to see him as all evil. 
I want to see him on the wrong side of the line. I want to see him in the league with Satan. That's where my righteous indignation takes me. Nehemiah didn't seem to go there. He didn't say, you're fully sinful through and through. You're despicable, change your ways. Now, some of the things they did were despicable, right? But he didn't go at it that way. And I shouldn't either, nor should we. We shouldn't assume the worst, so we should try to win our brother or sister. Fourth thing, in point of application, is the obvious. God is on the side of the disadvantaged, the poor. The Mosaic laws over and over and over again talk about usury. Using your brothers and sisters. Not that there's anything wrong with an interest rate on money. I would imagine there might be five people in this entire room who could have bought a house without interest, right? That's part of our economic engine. This is not the same. This is your brother or sister on the verge of being impoverished and you taking advantage of him by saying, give me what's yours and I'll let you keep going and I'll feed you. It's using the situation. Now, arguably, in the Christian community, we should help one another out without charging interest. Take a look at the New Testament. If your brother or sister is in trouble, you help them. You give them a leg up. Don't be like everybody else. We're a community of Christ followers. Here's another reason that we shouldn't take advantage of those who are disadvantaged. And the reason the Mosaic Law is written this way is because when they sold their fields and when they sold their family into slavery, it didn't make things better societally, not just individually, but for the whole society, it made it worse. You're putting them further and further behind in their ability to get out of poverty. How are they going to get out of poverty? You caught them between a rock and a hard place, he says. And you used them. Now, the same application, of course, could be made in some measure outside the Christian community. We could ask the question, what does it mean for the needy around us? By the way, Uh, on Communion Sunday, we always have a prayer confession. And we ask you to join us in the prayer confession. And frequently, that prayer confession has something to do with the needy and our neglect of them. Why? Because it's so easy to do. Let me read you one of them what we use on Sunday morning. Says eternal God, our judge and redeemer, we confess that we have tried to hide from you. We have done wrong. 
We have lived for ourselves and turned from our neighbors. We have refused to bear the troubles of others. We've ignored the pain of the world and passed by the hungry, the poor, and the oppressed. Oh God, in your great mercy, forgive our sins and free us from selfishness that we may choose your will and obey your commandments through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. I'm going to assume for a moment that what I'm about to say concerning my arrogance has also been in your heart. I look up on the screen and I read the confession and I say to myself, I haven't refused to bear the burdens of others. I haven't passed by the poor and needy. Why do I have to say that? I think the reason I have to say that is not about the particulars, but about the general principle. After all those particulars are listed in that confession, here's the general principle. Oh God, in your great mercy, forgive us our sins and free us from selfishness. Free us from being all about ourselves. You know why that's so poignant? Because frequently, I don't even notice the needy. Why? Not because I hate them. Not because I think they're disgusting. But because I'm just thinking about myself. I am so self-centered that I don't even see. That's what the prayer is getting to. Now, of course, in the case of Nehemiah, it's pretty bold. They are involved in usury. In our case, well, you might not be so bold. But maybe, just maybe, as a Christian, a Christ follower, one whose attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in nature of God, consider equality with God, not something to be grasped, but emptied himself, became a servant. Maybe in light of our Savior, we ought to pray a prayer like this and ask whether or not God is shining a light on our selfishness. My friends, that's what Christians do. That's what Christians do. Because God loves an honest soul and he waits to forgive. He delights in forgiveness. I just leave you with this one passage before I move on to the last point. It's all over the Old Testament, but just this one as an illustration in Proverbs fourteen thirty one. Those who oppress the poor show contempt for their maker. Not just show contempt for that person. You show contempt for your maker when you oppress the poor. Why? Because in the face of that poor person who's destitute and without hope, 
If you listen and look, you'll see the image of God. That's why you show contempt for your maker when you oppress the poor. The final uh, point I want to make um, of application for spiritual growth, and, and it's this, it's sort of corporate and it's sort of personal. This problem of neglecting or even oppressing the poor, it might not have come to light except for this crisis. That's frequently true, my friends. That's why I go back to Phillips Brooks' quote. That in whatever commonplace way, you're feeling the pressure in whatever crisis you're going through and you're feeling the heat. It's in the midst of that that things emerge. And we've come through two and a half years of crisis. You know what happens? Things emerge. One of the things that emerges, I think and I hope, is a, a deeper understanding of the importance of community. We need one another. We can't go it on our own. Circumstances can bring out things that lay latent or fallow problems with in our corporate community and when within our private life. You know, one of the purposes of fasting is to get the toxins out of your body. You stop eating, you just drink the water or whatever liquids and before long, even your skin color will change, people say, right? It, it just, it, something is released because you're fasting. And in the same way, spiritual fasting does the same thing. The people who are really experts on the spiritual disciplines when they talk about fasting, they turn us away from the notion that we ought to fast so that we can get such and such in our life. They tell us, you fast to find what's down there. You fast and you deny yourself food or whatever other kind of fast it is and watch the irritability pop up. That's what happens when you fast. That's what happens when circumstances are tough. Maybe it's God's way of dealing with our inside person. So, At a very personal level, if circumstances are difficult right now for you. By the way, I I love that song about the same God. God Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Mary, the healing God, the forgiving God, all those things. I just love that song. You know, part of the reason I love that song is because I know a lot of your stories. And as we're singing the song, Think of you. I'm thinking about what you're going through. And I'm praying that the words of that music are resonating with you.
This is an aside, nowhere in my notes, although there's not much in my notes. You know something that's really spiritually healthy? When you sing a song like that or another song, use it as moments of prayer. Don't just sing it. As you sing it and you hear the words and you're stirred by it, whatever it is in your life that reflects there, pray it during the prayer. That makes the music even more powerful. Deeply transformative. So when we're going through difficult circumstances, we ask why. Nothing wrong with that. But when we're going through difficult circumstances, we probably ought to not forget <laughs> to say, God, what are you trying to teach me? Not that God is making our circumstances bad, although God has the power to do that. But God, in the midst of the circumstances, what can I learn? How can I become more spiritually mature? If we as individuals and a church are temples of the Holy Spirit, the big question is how is God shaping his pillars? Think of yourself as a pillar in the temple. How is God shaping you through and for the community of Christ? Let's pray. Lord, we uh, like to sing and praise you for all the good stuff, for all the blessings, and some wrong. But we also want to thank you for life circumstances that are hard, because it's there that we learn. It's there that we're driven to you. It's there that we feel your loving embrace in a way that we wouldn't if we were just self-sufficient. So thank you for that. But Lord, especially in the middle of whatever circumstances we're going through, Lord, teach us. Help us to understand what you're teaching us. And help us because of the circumstances and because of the ministry of your Holy Spirit to understand, to change, and to grow in Christ's likeness. And we'll thank you. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.